Thanks so much for this day, a new day with fresh mercies for us. You're such a good God. So, Lord, we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you because you are our strength and you are our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks so much, uh, worship team, acolytes, ushers, welcomers, everybody that, that, that uh, helps make this thing go around. Thank, thank you to all of you for being here and joining in worship. We always, I always like to say this when people ask me, like, you know, uh, what, what makes uh, Anglicanism a little bit different. And one of the things I like to say is we don't attend worship, we worship. Right? We, we all come together. We all have a part to play. Uh, Joe, it's so good to see you up and about, man. Thank you uh, for your ministry. Uh, you know, the, the lectors, when you get a chance, to uh, uh, make sure to say thanks to the lectors. I'll highlight them for a minute here. You know, so, something that uh, another distinctive of our way of worship and our way of doing things is that our liturgy is saturated with the scriptures. And uh, one of the things in our, in our daily uh, services that we've inherited as part of our tradition, morning and evening prayer, uh, there, there's a rubric in there, which is like an instruction. And after the, the scripture readings, it says a sermon may be preached. But you know what's not optional is the reading of the word. And so that is, that is a, a, a proclaiming event that happens when our lectors come up here to read the word of God. And we believe the Holy Spirit works in and through them as they verbalize that to us. So thank you so much, lectors, and, th- and thanks, Joe, uh, for your ministry to us. Not long ago, I attended a funeral. How's that for a good, you know, fun start? Um, not long ago, I attended a funeral. It wasn't the first funeral I had been to, of course, right? And it's probably not going to be the last funeral that I go to. Uh, it was for somebody that was loved and remembered as a faithful Christian, a valued friend, and a loving mother. This is why it came to me as I was thinking about Mother's Day. And the service was held in an old stone church in kind of the older uh, part of Chandler. High ceilings, giant cross over the altar. It very much felt like a sacred space when you walked in. Like spaces like that are built to communicate something. Like they, they witness uh, by their shape, by the materials used, by the layout of the room to a different reality than perhaps the one we are experiencing in a moment like a funeral. In a moment like a funeral, there's an un- inherent uncertainty. What will life be like now? Right? Things are different. The, the pain of loss is, is real. And yet there's a sense of something solid and something lasting when I touch a masonry wall. There's a a sense of transcendent presence when I gaze at, at soaring rafters. And there's this comforting reminder that God knows loss too. When I notice a cross suspended over the altar. Sometimes all that can be unconscious, of course, right? Like, I wasn't explicitly thinking of all that when I sat down to attend the service. But there was a moment when it all crystallized for me. It's a moment 
that comes in most Christian funerals. It was when, as a congregation, gathered to mourn death and celebrate life, we recited together the sacred words of Psalm 23. We already read it one time together, and I I just want to read it again for us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, what can be said, right? We've heard this psalm. We've memorized this psalm. We've all prayed this psalm a million times. This and some of the other passages that we read today are some of the most beautiful and most treasured verses in the whole Bible. There are passages that comfort us and that challenge us. Passages that reveal who God is and what he's like. Passages that cast a vision for the kingdom of God, not only as it is in the spiritual heavenly realm, but also how God desires it to be on earth. Most of all, they reveal to us the heart of God for his people. The heart of God for his people. See, in our time, in our place, in our cultural situation, it's, it's easy to become confused about these things. Who God is, what he's like what his heart is for his people. Like the weirder parts of books like Revelation, they become kind of twisted into sources of entertainment and speculation. Uh, And the parts that are like the one that we read today, they get kind of skipped over, actually. They're like, oh, that's the happy ending, but it doesn't really have much to do with us today, right? So, So they get kind of skipped over glossed over. And and while we love the comfort of the 23rd Psalm, there's still something that we forget about what it might mean in light of Christ, that he would be our shepherd, that he would be the Lord, that he would be our God, and that he would change the shape of our lives as individuals and our lives together. So what do our readings today kind of collectively tell us about what God is like and what his kingdom is like and what his heart is for his people? Let's tackle the question of what God is like and camp out on that for a little bit. First, we see that God is like a shepherd. God is like a shepherd. This is the metaphor in three out of four of our readings today. We have this kind of idyllic view of shepherds today, don't we? Like we think of them sitting under a tree in the middle of a vast pasture, contemplating life, gently prodding the flock along as needed. 
But we got to remember the cultural context and the geographical context of shepherds in the Bible. Geography in Palestine is really different than rural America, which is sometimes where our brains go when we think about shepherds, right? There aren't very many lush pastures in Palestine. Uh, Rain is hard to come by. The terrain is often mountainous and rocky and desert-like. Shepherds aren't just like chilling out all day under a tree. Right? Most of the time, they are climbing. They're keeping the sheep from falling off ledges. They're fending off predators. Remember David the shepherd? It's like, what does he do? He like kills lions and bears and stuff. Right? They're, they're holding this flock together in these treacherous situations, even as some tend to wander. Right? Was it necessarily an easy job? It was an active vocation that wasn't just about making everything easy for the flock, but was making sure that the flock was getting to where it needed to go. And that's why the shepherd of Psalm 23 is described not only as leading to quiet waters and and restful pastures, but through even the darkest valley. A shepherd is a a guide, a protector, a caretaker that is characterized by being with the sheep. But what if our shepherd wasn't just with the sheep, but was in fact one of the sheep? That's what we get in Jesus. So that brings us to our next observation about God from today's text. First, we we say God's like like a shepherd. The second, we see that God is like a lamb. God is like a lamb. Wait wait a minute. Wait a minute, you might be saying. Jesus is like a lamb, but not God. That's a problem right there as we start separating those two things out. We we get into trouble. We think about Jesus. Jesus is the meek and mild one that was the sacrifice on our behalf, right? But isn't God the Father the angry one? This is a really popular idea. It gets floated from time to time that that Jesus reveals only part of what God is like. And we can't make too much of Jesus. We can't make too much of his grace and mercy and his life of self-sacrifice because that would do a disservice to, say, the justice of God, the Father. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say in our gospel passage from John chapter 10? He says, the Father and I are one. He doesn't say the father is my better half or I'm the father's better half. He doesn't say he's part of the father. He says he and the father are one. Now, clearly he doesn't mean they're the same person. Uh, After all, he says he's doing works in my father's name. So he understands the father to be a divine person like himself, that he is in relationship with, yet they are essentially one in their will. To do works in the Father's name is to do the will of the Father. Jesus does what God does. Do you guys remember this verse in John five nineteen, where he says, I do what I see my Father doing. In the Revelation passage, we have a vision of a multitude praising and worshiping before the throne of God. This is what it says, crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and 
worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and, and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. God and the Lamb are situated in the same spot on the throne, right? All the worship given to God is given to the Lamb, to Jesus. Get this, who retains that identity as the Lamb and who is worshiped as such forever. So there can never be a separation between what God is like and what Jesus is like. That's the point here. The, the, the whole point of incarnation, that is God becoming man in Jesus Christ, is for the shepherd to be with his sheep, to both identify himself to them, right, to reveal himself to them, and with them, so that they will recognize his voice. And Jesus said his sheep, like, hear him when he calls, right? They know his voice. We can be absolutely sure that if we are listening to and obeying Jesus, we are hearing and responding to God. If we want to know what God is like, we can say without qualification that God's character is exactly like Jesus. God's character is exactly like Jesus. This reveals to us so much about the heart of God. The heart of God for his people. See, the cross was both the means of our redemption, our salvation, as Jesus defeated death and evil there in our place, took all of our sin on himself. It was also the great moment of glory. Jesus says this is his moment of glory. This is the great moment of glory that shows us what real love is like. And so we see that God's fundamental posture is not wrath at us as individuals for not measuring up or anything like that, but rather total self-giving love. It's not to say that, that God isn't wrathful towards sin. He's, he certainly is. Sin makes God angry. And I never want to uh, gloss over that. But the point of the cross is love for the world so that those that believe in Jesus will not be caught in a tangle of self-destruction and swept away when the time comes, and it will come for all evil to be eradicated. God sent Jesus for our rescue. That's his fundamental posture towards us. One author writes this, just as the flame which flashes out from a volcano momentarily reveals the elemental unceasing fires burning at the earth's heart. So the love that leapt out on one crowning day of history in a sheer flame of the cross disclosed what God's inmost nature is forever. Isn't that beautiful? During this season, we are reminded of this great victory, this, this great revelation of who God is and what he's like. And we celebrate that Christ's work as the lamb who is slain for us, we celebrate that that was vindicated and witnessed to by his resurrection from the dead. And that truly he is the only shepherd that can give us eternal life. And this has got to turn all of our ideas about how to get things done, about power and success, even about what a life worth living looks like on its head. Because we see in Christ, the lamb giving over grasping, presence over profits, 
a new identity over ego. Eternal life through losing all that you think you have through this world. Personally, I find this comforting because every time I think that I've gotten something from this world, whether that's a sense of worth in being liked, it's a big, uh, a big problem for me. I, I, I like to be liked. Uh, you guys ever watch The Office? Yeah, I'm going to talk about The Office from the pulpit. You guys ever watch The Office? Uh, okay, so uh, Michael Scott, right, the, the, the boss character, I mean, he's notoriously insecure. And one of my favorite lines is he says, would I rather be loved or feared? Easy, both. I want, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. I sense a lot of myself in that statement, right? Like, I, I identify with that. I get that. But every time I think I've gotten that, like some kind of sense of worth and being liked, right? Or some kind of sense of financial security because I have some, some extra funds socked away in the bank for my tax returns this year or, or, or whatever. It all turns out to be really temporary. It all turns out to be so temporary and so unsatisfying long-term. Because I'm always grasping for, I can never be liked enough. I can always be more secure. I can always have one more emergency that I could be able to cover. The world is like cotton candy, right? It promises a lot, but it delivers mostly just air and rotten teeth. No matter how well I think my reputation is doing or how comfy my financial cushion is, I can't seem to escape hardship either. Emotional, physical, spiritual. I cannot escape it. And I don't know a single person that hasn't experienced profound loss in this room. But the comfort here is that those that experience the love of God, that celebrate his salvation most prominently in this Revelation 7 passage that we're camping out on right now are those that have been given new clothes by the Lord. Did you catch that? That they're wearing these white robes that have been washed in his blood that have been set apart because of what Jesus has done, not because of what they've done. And I love that this Revelation passage is paired with the Acts 9 story about the resuscitation of Tabitha. It took me a little bit to find the connection here. But here's why I think that our our lectionary compilers put these two pieces together. See, clothes in the ancient world were a big deal. We take clothing for granted today because it can be had for so cheap most of the time. But it was really expensive and really time-consuming to make clothes back then, which is why uh, most people only had, say, like one overcoat, one cloak. Um, and, and that's why there are these laws around lending and stealing clothes that were super strict. And so just like today, clothes were also often a status symbol, right? Like how cool were you? How much money do you have? So on and so forth. And, I, and an identity marker. And so Tabitha, as a disciple of the Lord, was known for good works and charity and making clothes. There's no doubt in my mind that that these were related, and that's why they're all there in the story. Right? It's, It's the clothes that everybody wants to show Peter when he shows up. They take him up to the room and they're like, look at all these clothes that she's that she's made. 
And clearly more than she needed. Why? Well, she was known for good works and charity. She was probably creating clothing for those in need. She was giving them dignity. She was giving them protection all in the, in the name of Jesus. And her ministry was so important that when she got sick and died, God said, not yet, sister. Her ministry of clothing for, for those in need was, was this practical witness and, and a foretaste of the ultimate protection, the true identity and dignity that we all receive when we respond to the call of discipleship and when we receive God's gift of life in Jesus Christ. Not that the journey with the shepherd's going to be easy, of course. Uh, you, you'd never hear me say up here that it's going to be an easy journey. It wasn't easy for those in John's revelation. It's not easy just for the image of sheep in general. Sheep didn't have an easy life either. Um, the elders say this. Um, when John is like, uh, he, they, they, he, he's finding out who these people are. And they say, these are those who have come out of the great ordeal or great tribulation. It might be in your translation or great trouble. Wasn't easy for them. It's not going to be easy for you or me probably either. But here's the thing. Whatever ordeal you are going through, you have a shepherd. You have a shepherd that will see you too through the darkest valley and lead you too to green pastures and quiet waters. The heart of God for his people the heart of God is to see you whole, happy, and alive forever with him. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And all of us in this room that trust Jesus as our shepherd will be before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter us with his presence. We will hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike us, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd. And he will guide us to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The lamb will be their shepherd. The lamb will be our shepherd. This is good news. Amen.